This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. Hello, traders, and welcome to the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. I'm Jack Pelzer. And I'm Mark Meadows. Uh, We have a barn burner of a show for you today. The CEO and founder of Liberationist, Gustavo Rossetti, is on the hotline with Jeff Carter for today's interview. Uh, Gustavo's company, Liberationist, exists to, quote, transform people into positive agents of change. He's a former managing director at Leo Burnett and an expert on helping individuals and organizations become fearless. Mark, do you think being fearless would help you become a better trader? I think so. Or maybe a worse trader. Who knows? Either way, you'd be going big. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I used to get this terrible feeling in my stomach when a position was going in my face. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you get that? Yeah. Yeah. I once threw up at work. But uh, yeah, that was the nice thing about not being on the floor. You had like a garbage can right there (laughs) that you could use. Um, That means it's probably time to get out of that position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I would would always puke first, (laughs) then the position. And then you'd puke the position. (laughs) Yeah, it always squeezed against me. Uh, But anyway, before we get to the interview between Gustavo and Jeff, I thought we might do a little uh, live market reaction since Mark is in the studio. Uh, Mark, what do you say we talk about legendary trader Paul Tudor Jones? Perfect. Okay. Well, there's a blurb of news that makes this timely. At the Greenwich Economic Forum Tuesday, PTJ predicted that the S&P 500 would plunge 25% if Elizabeth Warren was elected president and rally an additional 15% if Trump was reelected. Mark Meadows, who is not the congressman, I think we know what he thinks. <laughs> uh, what do you think about this? You know, I think it's it's interesting. You know, you, you say that, uh, you know, these are big headlines from you know, big, important people. But I guarantee on a day to day basis, Paul Tudor Jones is not making trading decisions based on his prognostication of whether or not Elizabeth Warren is going to be president. So that would be caveat numero uno. Um, The second thing is he may be right. He may be wrong. Typically, as you know, the market is a discounting mechanism. So if Elizabeth Warren is going to be elected president, it will factor that in prior to Election Day uh, 2020. Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the things I've really been interested in following and doing some of my own trading is in those uh, political, I suppose they call it betting, but political betting markets. And it's interesting to see what sort of the implied probabilities there are saying as far as who's going to be president. You see how people can be irrational and like everyone can remember that the market when on election day when Trump got elected, it crashed initially and then kept on rallying the new highs. Right. So, like, my opinion on the issue is regardless of what your political bent is, I think ultimately it's going to be, you know, productivity technology gains that in the long term. I'm a buy and hold guy. Yeah. And if you're looking out that far, that's kind of what you got to be doing. Yeah. But let's let's not discount the decision completely. And and again, divorcing this from whether or not the market goes up or down, um, the election of of president or a president Warren would have real implications on um, pharmaceutical companies, on healthcare Healthcare. companies, right? Like, and that's a large and growing part of the market, which may, in fact, you know, suffer some some challenges moving ahead. So, you know, in in that respect, I think there are potentially trading decisions that one could make based on the probabilities of those, you know, more policies getting implemented than anything else, right? Like, I don't know if it's exactly tied to Elizabeth Warren or you know, if, you know, someone else was elected who espoused those same policies, 
um, you'd probably see those companies, you know, scramble to react as well. Well, there's an interesting dynamic going on with the uh, money managers and traders like the billionaires on that side in that they're definitely with the recent popularity of sort of the Warren campaign has had some momentum. There's definitely been a lot of jawboning suddenly against her. And one thing you see on the other end is you see a lot of the uh, even the Democrats on Wall Street, a lot of their money is now floating into the uh, Mayor Pete campaign. Mm -hmm. So there is some concern about that even within the party. So it'll be interesting to see how that works out. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Paul Tudor Jones, Mark, you also wrote a very popular blog on the uh, website about the seven trading secrets, I believe, of Paul Tudor Jones. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and, and this, you know, wasn't an interview I, I got to do with him, unfortunately. <laughs> um, <laughs> We'd be promoting I, that pretty hard. Right. I'm just a big fan. Um, and it actually came from the Market Wizards books. Um, so so taking a look at what he shared in the Market Wizards books, he had one um, in their uh, point of wisdom that he shared about a market reaching new highs. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, he's a famous contrarian trader, right? He was he was selling the market in 87. But he did say when the market makes new highs, that tells you something. That's new information. You shouldn't just take that as, you know, oh, I was bearish yesterday. I'm bearish today. You have to take that as new information. And I think that's one that's very tangible to you know, how we're we're trading right now. I think that's really good advice, especially now. This market has been characterized, it seems, by like almost a lack of information. But it's interesting to see it put that way, that if it's making new highs, that is new information. You have yeah. to take it seriously. Yeah. And and the way he traded, too, right, as a contrarian, he was um, he would take a thousand cuts to get that one huge move. Um, so I would uh, I would recommend everyone to kind of uh, mirror that approach if you are taking the other side of the market or the other side of the trend to take those small stops, small losses um, in in what you ultimately see the direction of the market going. Looking for those asymmetric opportunities. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Hey, uh, question. Have you ever uh, seen the uh, banned documentary on Paul Tudor Jones? Yes. I, oh, that was when I was at uh, Chopper Trading. That was the rage of the place is when somebody found the YouTube clip of that uh, banned PBS documentary. It's just called Trader, right? Yeah, Trader. I highly recommend that everyone go out there and good uh, luck finding it. it. It gets taken down from YouTube, but it appears from time to time. It does. It does. It's um, it's something that I've watched uh, once and I went back. I was like, you know, I want to watch that again. Went back the next day. It was gone. You know what's interesting about that, too, is that I've watched it. It really does not paint him in a terrible light. It's interesting that, like, really, there's just probably that one thing about Bruce Willis's sneakers yeah, that yeah. he didn't like the way that made him look. It made him look kind of dorky. But besides that, I didn't think it was, you know, it, it wasn't some cutting documentary. It was, I thought it was just very interesting. No, it, as a trader, it was super interesting because, you know, you had the uh, – it, it actually covered him during that whole 1987 time frame when he was um, shorting the market. And he kept so on you, losing and losing. And, and you then... got to see some of that thought process. So if anyone can find it out there, please share it with us. Um, we'd love to, um, you know, watch it again. Yeah. So, well, Mark, I think that we can both agree that Paul Tudor Jones was pretty fearless as a trader. <laughs> Transition. Transition. So I think that means he'd get along pretty well with today's guest on the podcast, Gustavo Rosati. Uh, Mark, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. 
I'll see you back in the office. Sounds We're very good. much more peppy when we uh, do these in the morning as That's opposed right. to like 5 o'clock in the evening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, listeners, I invite you now to sit back, relax, and enjoy today's Limit Up interview featuring our very own Jeff Carter and the founder and CEO of Liberationist, Gustavo Rosati. Welcome to another edition of the Limit Up podcast, courtesy of Top Step Trader. My name is Jeff Carter. You can find me online at pointsandfigures.com, where I blog, and you can find me on Twitter at pointsandfigures. Today, we have Gustavo Rossetti on our program. He is the CEO and founder of Liberationist since 2017, but you have a pretty distinguished career before that. Welcome to the program, Gustavo. Thank you, Jeff, for hosting me. So nice to be here. Yeah, yeah. So. Let's talk about sort of like what the Liberationist does. What, why did you start it and what's your mission? Well, that's great. I think that uh, I started to, to mend some mistakes, <laughs> so <laughs> to speak. <laughs> uh, I think that uh, throughout my career, like uh, over 30 years, I had the pleasure to work with almost all the largest companies across the planet uh, as a consultant on the marketing and innovation space. And I saw directly all the mistakes that leader, leaders made. Then I became a leader myself. So I ran like five companies and I made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. So now I'm trying to mend all those mistakes, the ones that other leaders made and the ones I made myself. So basically, we help companies build a, what we call a positive culture. A, a positive culture doesn't mean that everything's going to be fine, but it's basically trying to address the way we work in a more positive fashion and to liberate the best version of people, right? So we think that people have all the talent and skills to perform, and the role of leaders is not to empower them, but to liberate their best version. Interesting, because, I mean, inherently we know we're human, right? I mean, so we're going to make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. So why do you think companies penalize people that make mistakes? I think because companies are afraid so I think that it comes from our education system and also what we learn when we start on our first jobs that were taught through a right or wrong mindset. So, for example, when in the education system, we don't teach, they don't teach people to learn. They teach people to score on a test. So basically, it's about finding where are the right answers and make sure that you get the right score and boom, you're done. So when you start working... Uh, once again, it's not about developing your curiosity or creativity or ability to learn. It's about making sure that this is the way we do things here and learn the rules and you're going to be successful. So one of the things that Top Step Trader does and, and that, you know, I was a trader before, you know, in my prior life. And there can be a lot of fear around making a mistake. And, and when you make a mistake, you know, it the tangible evidence that you made a mistake is you lost money. How do you get over that fear? That's a great question. I think that, uh, I mean, one of the questions I, I always ask to myself and I also coach people to ask themselves is, what's the worst thing that can happen? And, uh, and in the end, many times fears are based on a lot of scenarios that never happen to materialize. And because we're always... Uh, uh, ruminating that, oh, this might go wrong, this might go wrong, blah, 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 then we don't make any decisions. To your point, yes, many times you can lose money or you can lose an opportunity, but in the end, if we look back in our lives and career, we always recover. 
right? So we recover from mistakes. So some people make a mistake and then they get stuck and then they are fearful and they want to make sure that they avoid that mistake in the future. But smart people learn how to correct their behavior and the way they make decisions based on the mistakes. So mistakes are lessons. So if you avoid the lesson, you don't grow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. But I mean, one of the things, you know, it's funny. When you're a trainer on the floor, you, you create these catastrophic scenarios around mistakes. And like you say, they don't happen. But still, you know, if you keep losing money, you're not going to, you're going to wind up selling pencils on the street, right? I mean, that's the catastrophic fear. Are there games or things you can do to your mind to like blot that out or change the narrative so that you don't have that catastrophic fear? Yeah, I think there there are two big things, which is the first is understand that 85% of things, you know, to kind of, are out of our control. So when we focus our narrative to a point in what's out of our control, our head is going to start spinning <laughs> around without <laughs> stop. Right. So my advice is always focus on the other 15%. What are the things that you can control that are in their, your decision, you know, your emotions, what you do, how you react to events, how do you adapt to the things that are out of your control, and that gives you much more tools to make better decisions. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. And... And what do you do to yourself? Like in your book, you talk about, you know, changing culture and changing things. What can people do inside themselves to help effectuate change or insulate themselves from uh, fear of making a mistake? Yeah, that's perfect. I think that the most important thing that we need to be is kind to ourselves. I think that we are very harsh as human beings, because of our, the pressure that we have to succeed and be successful. Mm -hmm. And many times we don't accept, as you said before, that we're humans. And the moment you release yourself from that internal pressure, basically it's easier to make decisions. You know? So you understand that life is a trial and error. The most important thing is don't make the same error over and over. <laughs> That's... <laughs> And in the end, it's all about the mindset that we have. You know? So, for example, if you have a perfectionist mindset, you always try to make things better and better, but then in the end, you never launch. No? And some other people say, okay, you know, this is the best version I was able to create so far. I'm going to put it in front of people. I'm going to launch this version of a product, see what happens, and then I use feedback to continue to improve it. Versus perfectionists, the, the, the funny thing is there's a lot of people that they believe that they're cool because they are perfectionists, you know? So there's always a, a tricky question when you're interviewing for a job and people tell you, okay, ask you, tell me a weakness that you have. And people say, oh, my weakness is I'm a perfectionist, <laughs> you know? Because we laugh like, oh, I'm so, you know, my worst side is to, but in the end, perfectionists, some perfectionism hurts and harms how we behave because nothing is ever good enough. And in the end, we're feeling our fear of failure. Right. That brings up an interesting point. So you may be like interviewing for jobs 
and not every company's culture is going to fit your personality. What sort of questions can you ask the company people to find out if that company would tolerate mistakes or have sort of a, a culture that's what you would call a positive change approach for a fearless culture? How, what sort of questions can you ask them so that you can get an impression or at least an idea of what you're walking into? That's a great point. First, because we forget many times that when we're interviewing, it's a two-way street. No? So they are not, we're not just being interviewed, we're also interviewing. It's like a, a uh, a date, no? It, both yeah, it parties is. No, are, it yeah. is a date. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But many times, employees when they are when they are interviewing, they they fear that ah, it's about me showing down that I'm smart. No, you should have ask questions as well. And to your point, I think that the question to ask is, what's your mistake policy? Right. I ask this to my clients when when I start working with a new company and they want to build. Basically, when they call me, they want to build a more innovative a more a, a creative kind of culture, the first thing I ask their CEOs or head of human resources, how do you deal with mistakes? Hmm. No? Do you have a, a clear policy of are mistakes tolerated? And it's not a veiled question. It's a direct question. It's a direct question. Yeah. Yeah. And in most cases, they start like, oh, I don't know, sparring, like uh, we don't have, because most companies don't have a clear rule. So, you know that many corporations are copying this motto from startups about failing fast. Yeah, yeah, they all talk it. Yeah, and they tell employees fail fast. But my point is not about failing fast, but failing smart. So it's not let's run and start making mistakes like <laughs> crazy. It's about let's make mistakes with a purpose. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what are the core principles of Liberationist, the organization that you started? The first is that people don't need to be empowered. No, there's a lot of conversation about empowerment being the solution to increase engagement and 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 participation and collaboration. Companies have been talking about empowering employees for years, the same as consultants, but actually only thirty something of employees are engaged. So actually, empowerment is not working because empowerment means that you as a boss, as a leader, as a manager, you have the power and you can give that power to the people. Our point is people are powerful. They don't need their bosses to be powerful. They need their bosses to move from their way and give them the autonomy and the decision-making authority for people to do their best work. It's interesting you say that. So I was just going to ask you, I went to the University of Illinois as an undergrad and one of my professors was a guy, um, Greg Oldham, who created Hackman Oldham Theory of Motivation, and he tested it on beaver trappers. And I was a 21-year-old punk kid in his class and got in a gigantic argument with him over this theory because I said, people are motivated by money. And he said, no, it's autonomy and self-determination in their jobs. And it's interesting you use that word autonomy because I think you're right. People do try to empower people, and it doesn't work. Because what they really need to do is delegate authority and autonomy to them so that they can design things themselves and then have a tolerance for failure when things break. Um, and people, I think, are in corporate structures are often unwilling to give up control. So that's a really, really interesting um, thing. So 
I invest in startups all the time. You know, I have a venture capital fund and, and started Hyde Park Angels. We talk about culture and team, and Ben Horowitz just came out with a book about culture. What do you think is the most important strategy for building a positive culture inside an organization? I think um, there, there are two things. One is about being genuine and authentic. So uh, organizations are realizing that culture is super important. No, it's a very important aspect. I mean, some people talk that culture, it's strategy for breakfast or for lunch, whatever version. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like that because I think that having a great culture without a great strategy makes no sense. So you need both. They need to eat together, so to speak. But companies are realizing that culture is super important. And in many cases, they're trying to build a culture that is not authentic. So they're trying to behave in a way that's going to be look, looking cool to attract new talent. They're adding like benefits or behaviors that seem like interesting, but they're not really connected to who they are. In the end, culture is less about putting ping pong tables and all the benefits that you do that are part of the culture. But the most important aspect of culture is what are the behaviors that we reward and we punish. Now, for example, let's say that I'm a CEO of a company and we say that we uh, want people to be more collaborative, right? Mm -hmm. But then we end promoting that manager that is an asshole, that doesn't collaborate, that is always dividing people. So the sign that we're saying to the organization is we don't care about collaboration. Right. That's the point. I mean, the behaviors of the managers, but also of the people, have a much more important role in defining culture than a vision or a purpose or a nice PowerPoint that we like to share with people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, PowerPoint. You know, it's just an aside. Um, I'm not an employee of Top Step Trader, but I find that the employees here at this company they they seem to have a very very good corporate culture. And it, 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 it filters down to the, just the way they interact with each other and, and the words that they use to, to speak to one another. It's very interesting. And, and about making mistakes and perfectionism, um, it works with your kids, too. When, when I was um, raising my daughters, are 28 and 25, we wound up reading this book by Sylvia Rim about how you speak to your children can change how they perceive themselves and it can eliminate sort of a perfectionism drive in, in kids so that they learn about effort and not just being perfect. Right. No, no. Yeah, yeah I agree. I mean, I think that the, the thing is we put a lot of value on skills, you know, our abilities, uh, basically what comes from the factory. <laughs> right. And, and in the end, everyone comes, I mean, our parents, our education system, whatever, give us different skills or, or, or stuff that we can work with. But in the end, showing up and our ability to learn and to continually put the effort, it's what makes or break our life, success or career. Right? Yeah, yeah. So most of the time when we talk about this cultural stuff at companies, we say it starts at the top, you know, the CEO, blah, blah, blah. What if you're not in a position of power? Can you do something to change the culture of the company or not? You can do everything. <laughs> because in the, um, everyone has a position of power, no? So that's, a, that's the interesting thing that power, this is from Game of Thrones, doesn't, doesn't reside 
power resides where you want to reside. So if I think that you're powerful, I'm giving you that, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you the power to be powerful, if you know what okay. I mean. Okay, yeah. So as an employee, you can see your boss as, oh, he has or she has all the power and I'm powerless. Or you can say, I also have power, which is power is the ability to act. That's the formal definition. So everyone has that. And also there are three forms of authority in a company. It's the formal authority, which is the title that you have and your job description and the ability to make decisions. There's a technical or expertise authority. If you're an engineer, if you're the most creative person, if you're the, the guy who knows how to invest money best and get the best return on investment, that gives you an authority because people are going to go to you when they need advice on how to invest their money. And the last form of power is the informal, basically the influence that you have in other people. That's about your relationships, your social skills, that regardless of your title, you can still create influence within the company. The work that we do is we believe that in today's world, companies cannot depend on a CEO or COO or whoever to change the culture and the business. Everyone in the organization need to be a, a change agent. They need to lead change. So the ability to identify opportunities or problems comes from anywhere in the organization. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of research that said kind of, and the, the percentages are, don't take them like a black or white. <laughs> they're not perfect, but they're, in, they're an indication that the leaders of the company only see 5% of all the problems affecting the company. Wow. And the baseline employees the frontline employees see 100% of those problems. Mm -hmm. So what this tells us is that we need to basically train and coach and distribute authority so the people that are closer to the problems can solve them. So in that sense, it's our role is to turn so that's everyone a into a... So that is delegating. That is empowering. Well, not empowering is the bad word. <laughs> that, okay. is, that, is, that is giving somebody autonomy to do that. And... and What's interesting about organizations is strategically, sometimes organizations do orient themselves around that. So if you go to the Ritz-Carlton, for example, the maid can choose to buy the hotel guest new shoes if somehow those shoes got ruined for some reason um, because they have a very decentralized structure. Um, what about more centralized companies like, for instance, um, the one that comes to mind is like a Mrs. Fields Cookies where they're intensely monitoring each franchise because you're dealing with food and you don't want people to get sick. So if you have a very centralized organization or, or for instance, uh, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange has a very centralized leadership, um, entrenched leadership, top-down structure, um, how do you create sort of that decentralized autonomy in a structure like that? That's a great point. I think that we tend to help companies like move toward a more self-managed kind of approach or decentralized, but not all companies can be decentralized. No? So for example, if you work in the healthcare industry uh, and if you're going to be launching like in pharmaceutical, no? if you're going to be launching a new drug, you cannot delegate. You cannot tell ah, anyone can make any choice and, and launch any product. You you still have a very regulated industry, and there needs to be a lot of process. But in many organizations and many industries, there's a lot of room for companies to start decentralizing. 
I think that there are many ways to go. Some people believe that the way to decentralize an organization is from black to white, so do it all together. Uh, and some people argue that you can need to start doing little by little, no? so start experimenting in different departments, in different situations, and start doing that. I think it's a, a combination of both. No? Across the whole organization, you need to start doing small experiments to decentralize the authority and, and, and basically show employees that they can do much more than they believe and to show managers that things are not going to be broken like immediately. But also, you need to take some areas of the company and do much more dramatic changes and then compare how both experiments are working. Okay. And in your book, Stretch for Change, um, you talk about change fitness. What is it? And that's a that's basically a metaphor, which is about the same way we talk about we need to prepare our bodies to do physical activities, to exercise. We need to prepare our mind to be more open to change. And uh, change fitness is your ability to be open, to be more adaptive and more proactive towards change. The, the interesting thing is both our bodies and our minds are prepared from nature to be uh, ready for change. So imagine kids. Kids learn to speak. They learn to walk. They learn to do a lot of stuff, mostly on their own. Parents, we believe that we help them, but actually, no, we just give them some clues and <laughs> that's it. And, uh, but at some point, our education system, many business books and that stuff, they present change like, oh, change is difficult. We cannot do it. It's hard. We're going to fail. And then we start seeding our brains with that notion that change is hard. So we start resisting it. Interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, like, with some of this stuff, not to get political, but you've got kind of two factions right now that are living in, or at least believing, two separate things. Um, it seems like some change fitness might help them bridge the gap. I don't know. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, definitely. Um, and then in change fitness, you have to tolerate mistakes. So, how do you hold yourself to a higher standard where you want to compete? You're going to be a warrior, but still tolerate mistakes. You know, you're that football coach, like Bill Belichick, or whatever. Or, you know, it's probably a bad example, but um, you're going to go out and you want to, you want to win every game, compete at a very high level. But if you're going to do that, you really can't make mistakes, right? I think it's more, it's not about making or not making mistakes. It's about how you react and recover from the mistakes. I think that many people are going to make mistakes during a, during a match. And some people, because they are so perfectionist, they're going to get stuck and they'll start thinking, oh, I shouldn't have done that and blah, blah, and then they're going to perform worse, where other people don't. So, for example, there are many things that we can do. I don't think that embracing mistakes goes again having higher standards. Basically, what you have is a higher goal that you want to achieve, and then you have a, a, a more human standard towards yourself. So, for example, there's this basketball coach, I can't remember his name, that one thing that he does, he wants to end all the practices with a positive note, so he has everyone, like, score before going to, to the showers, you know? Uh, the All Blacks, the New Zealand, like, rugby national team, they are super competitive, they are very aggressive, and they have 
two rituals that are really interesting because they they look like they were from two different teams. Before playing a match, they play the, the haka. haka. Yeah, yeah, and that's a very if you can see it, it's based on their their origin, their Aboriginal origin, and it's about the Maori culture. It's it's about preparing for war. It's not even a sport ritual. It's about preparing for war and we're going to kill you and it's very aggressive, right? But then when they finish the match, especially when they play on someone else's kind of a, a, a field, I mean, when they are visitors, they left the, the dressing room in a very pristine shape. Hmm. The guys don't just, they clean up the room, the, the dressing room. They do everything to because they are working on two aspects. First, that they need to be uh, humble as leaders, no? Okay, we're very good. We're one of the top high-performing teams, but we shouldn't lose humility and cleaning someone else's dressing room is like a, we're, we're being grateful. So I think that's a nice way of, we can balance being human and being humble with being high-performing. <laughs> right, and grateful isn't just thanking somebody. Exactly, yeah. Can you talk more about grateful, being grateful? What What... What is that all about? Because I think that word is bandied about a lot today and people don't truly understand it and the actions around it. Being grateful, it's appreciating what you have versus focusing on what you don't. So the way, it's the basis of happiness. A lot of people are unhappy because they're always seeing, I wish you know, they're either envying or, or being jealous about what other people are doing, you know, especially in social media. And being grateful, it's about appreciating what you have. And that makes you happy. For example, people having a, a gratitude journal. So it's a practice that I do and it's super effective. So at the end of the day, do a list of all the things that happen in your life, your career, in your family, friends, whatever, friendship, and write down all the things that went well, all the things that should be thankful for. The first day or two days or three days in, it's going to be hard. You're going to have very little things. But once you start building the practice, you start to recognize that great things happen to your life that you didn't know. Sometimes there are, I mean, you want a new business. It's amazing. Sometimes it was just you had a nice dinner or a friend called you and shared some good news, whatever. And that happens also on company culture. So a positive culture, it's about appreciating and valuing what we are good at versus focusing on what's wrong and what's broken and trying to fix the things that are not mm -hmm. good. And it doesn't mean you're complacent. I think that's a key point. It doesn't mean you're complacent. You're grateful for what you have. It doesn't mean that you're not striving for something new or better or whatever, but you're just grateful for the things you have today. Exactly. So it's an in the moment. It's an in the moment thing. Yeah, it's about building two things. First, like a baseline where you can grow from. And second is building momentum. I think that people don't realize the importance of building momentum. So I I moved to Chicago from, from LA like uh, seven or so years ago, right? And as you can tell, uh, the winter here is a little bit it's harsh. It's a little right? different, yeah. <laughs> the never-ending winter. That's right. And one thing I realized, I like biking, but I wasn't biking, like road biking that much. But I started biking more and more as a way to fight the winter because I didn't want to be locked in my house all the time. And at some point, I decided that I want to, I want to uh, uh, participate in a century event. A century, for those who don't know, it's yeah. a 100 I've miles done, event. I've done, I've done a century, yes. Yeah. Okay. So 
now I've been, I did many, but the first one was all of a challenge. So I had to prepare. So I built this trick that I say I need to start biking maybe 15 miles and then 20 and so on and so forth. So of one of the things I, I built is this trick that if I decided I was, was going to bike, let's say, 20 miles, when I reached to mile 10, which is was halfway, instead of turning back, I say, well, you know what? I'm going to ride one or two more miles. Right. And that small uh, trick, basically, when you go back, you're riding four more miles that you were planned to. So those little stretches start building momentum and making your mind realize that ah, I can do it. So you keep pushing yourself and that's building your fitness. No? Right. And I think over my life, I, I'm one of the things that you don't realize probably is how far your mind can go. And how much you can take. Um, I So, you know, when I was 18, I went to the Air Force Academy and went through basic training. And you really do learn the limits, or not the limits. You learn where your mind had your limits before and how far you really can exceed those limits um, emotionally, mentally, and physically. And it's pretty incredible what people can do. And just average people, you know, you don't have to be above average. You can just be an average person and do it yeah no absolutely i think that you were talking before about fear and the same happens with a pain pain is an indicator that the body starts to stretch beyond its comfort zone so the first signal of pain doesn't mean that we need to stop it's telling us that we still have like 20 30 percent of uh, energy left there's a guy i can't remember his name he he won a couple of tour of france uh cyclist and the guy was famous because he has this uh, saying that he he was always thinking, you no, know, when when biking, shut up legs, right? You no, know, when the legs were telling him <laughs> were feeling the pain, he the guy said, shut up legs, because basically I want, I'm going to continue cycling. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm going up out by the Huaz. So how can people improve their mistake tolerance so that they can encourage growth? Basically, I think there are two mindsets when it comes to uh, mistakes right? And that's the first thing that we need to realize. Which mindset? Mindset is like a, it's our belief. It's like a lens through which we see reality. So we filter our behavior through that mindset. And some people have a mindset that it's when they are facing a mistake, because we all do mistakes. So there's not such a thing that people don't do mistakes. One mindset is about avoidance. So we make a mistake and we try to hide it. We try to ignore it. And we try to Forget it. Like, oh, I shouldn't be doing that. And boom, we run away from it. The second mindset, which is the recommended one, is it's about like facing your mistake, facing it, be a, a kind to yourself instead of beating yourself up because you make a mistake. It's okay, okay, this went wrong. What happened? Why? And try to learn from it. As I said before, it's very important to learn from mistakes so you don't repeat them in the future. You don't do the same, no? So that happens a lot with children. So a lot of children are trained to that uh, mistakes are bad, so they fear mistakes. And others are taught to uh, learn how to do it, no? So, for example, in one of the articles I wrote, I explained like, how uh, Japanese students were beating Americans in, in different competitions at math. And basically because American teachers were training kids to be perfect. And the Japanese students 
basically, uh, instead of telling them how to solve a problem, they post the problem in front of the classroom and let the children figure it out. Of course, 9 out of 10 children, Japanese children, didn't figure out right. But then, when they started discussing, okay, you make a mistake because of that, people learn more from making a mistake first and then correcting than from trying to remember what's the perfect solution. Interesting. Well, thank you very much, Gustavo, for coming on the program today. I really appreciate it. Um, these kind of things that that you're talking about really do apply to trading because in trading you, you have like several chances a day to make a buy or sell decision and you're not going to be right all the time and um you can't beat yourself up um and and if you if you're coming into the situation with the wrong sort of mental framework it's really going to affect how you perform so it's a, I think this is a very important concept for traders to kind of pick up on. No, absolutely. I think that uh, we need to reframe our relationship with mistakes. That's key. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we certainly do. That's the message. We yeah. certainly do. So um, Gustavo wrote a book, as I talked about at the beginning. He's the author of Stretch for Change, How to Improve Your Change Fitness and Thrive in Life. Do you have a website or anything that people can reach you at? Yes, my website is liberationist.org and there not only they can find out more about what we do and our approach, but we also have like over 400 articles on, on change and leadership and also different tools and exercises that people can download and practice. Oh, that's very and, cool. And learn, yeah. That's very yeah. cool. For free. Yeah, <laughs> for free. That's yeah. great. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you very much, and uh, I hope you have a great day, and maybe the snow and rain will stop a little bit. You can go out on your bike and uh, and battle the elements. Absolutely. So thank you so much, Jeff, and have a great you day. You too. Take care, Gustavo. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Traders, thank you for making it to the bitter end of the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. We'll be back next week with a brand new guest. Pretty please rate and subscribe to this podcast if you have not already. And follow us at Top Step Trader. That is at symbol Top Step Trader on Instagram to see our latest goings on, including the latest trader shout out. What is a trader shout out, you ask? Well, you'll just have to follow us on Instagram to find out. It's just a little something all of us at the Chicago office do to congratulate our funded traders who make a big withdrawal from their account. Speaking of funded traders, you can join our private, very exclusive, velvet roped Facebook community and have a conversation with them live. You will learn oh so much. And uh, what else? Uh, oh, I just wrote a beginner's guide to trading crude oil futures that we just posted on the Top Step Trader blog. I think you'll like it if you're new to trading crude oil. New to trading crude oil. God, that was a difficult sentence. I don't know why I wrote it there. Otherwise, give it a read and tell me why I'm an idiot in the comments. Either way, I hope all of you out there have a wonderful weekend. Namaste and trade well. This episode produced by Dante32.
Futures and Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.